0: We've got to build this new coalition. It's not gonna just materialize magically if we don't build it. Like-minded people who support democratic, liberal values in society that oppose, cancel culture that oppose extremism on the right. We've got to build those allies. And they aren't the usual suspects. And they're not organized yet because that's not how people have traditionally organized themselves. But people are starting to feel alienated from both the right and the left. And we've got to take advantage of that and build a movement Because if we don't, moderates are not going to have a voice. And that's how we're going to face down these problems. That, to me, is the answer. It's not easy work. It's not a national anti-Semitism plan with 50 parts or something. It's not some strategy that can easily implement. It's a long-term repositioning of the Jewish community and a new strategy that allows us to build a new set of partners to face the current strategic environment.
1: this is a jewish tv channel presentation welcome to talking point where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus conversations with jtvc show host laura kessler comes up next welcome to talking point i'm laura kessler one of the missions of the jewish tv channel is to support bipartisan action against anti-Semitism in the fight against the AIM syndrome, anti-Semitism, Israel phobia, and the miseducation of our youth. As we launch the BIPAC channel this month, today's show is about the road less traveled and what my guest today calls being in the courage business. We've been talking a lot about what it means to be a courageous leader over the last couple months David Bernstein is a courageous and talented leader who has served the Jewish community at virtually every organizational level. A philosophy PhD with a background in nonprofit organizational development, David is a serial innovator in the fight against anti-Semitism who has achieved success at all levels of Jewish advocacy, including the road less traveled. From American Jewish Committee to the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, the David Project, and the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. David is one of those great communicators who can literally work with everybody. Today we'll be talking about how to build coalitions with strange bedfellows and the need to approach anti-Semitism not by being product-oriented, but by being people-oriented and focusing on helping others find their voice with courage and confidence. David Bernstein is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which opposes illiberal ideologies and supports liberal values in and out of the Jewish community. He's the author of Woke Antisemitism: How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. He's also a co-founder of the Institute for Liberal Values, a consortium of like-minded organizations supporting liberal principles. He is past president and CEO of Jewish Council for Public Affairs and former executive director of the David Project. He spent 13 years at the American Jewish Committee in senior roles and is a prolific speaker, podcaster, and writer. He's written hundreds of opinion pieces in the Jewish and general press and is a passionate advocate of the free expression of ideas in Israel, and we're so honored to have him with us today. Welcome, David.
0: It's great to be with you.
1: You just got back from ISGAP, how was it?
0: Well, it was wonderful. I was in Oxford, England at this intensive program, Summer Institute on anti-Semitism with scholars and students from around the world, really talking about the high level trends and how we can talk about it and teach about it. I was able to present my own thesis, which is that radical social justice ideology is fanning the flames of anti-Semitism. And uh, most of the people were very highly receptive to that. And so we were really able to have a lot of rich conversations. And I came back with all kinds of new ideas. And to boot, Oxford is just a amazing place. It's beautiful. Um, it looks like you're in a Harry Potter land, you know. And um, and it was wonderful to be there in like <laughs> 78 degree Fahrenheit weather every day.
1: I'm so jealous of that. <laughs> yeah, I've been to Oxford. It's wonderful there. And it's going to be great to see A lot of the people that went to ISGAP, it's going to be great to see the things you guys come up with. Excited for that. So I wanted to start just a little bit with some background about how your Jewish identity was formed when you were young. And I'm just curious how that shaped the work you do, what led to it, and a little bit about your own personal journey as an activist. Sure. So I grew up um,
0: in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and t- I had an Iraqi Jewish mom who came to the United States in 1963. And when I was four years old, my grandmother, her, my mom's mom, moved from Baghdad to the, our house. And um, and so I learned to speak that Iraqi dialect of Arabic with her. And I had then wow. a cousin and his wife also. I mean, his wife, his mother also moved into our house in a f- couple years later. And so we had a bustling household with Arabic spoken. Um, we had a lot of Israeli family who um, would come and visit us. And so I had a very keen sense of being different as a Jew, not just the average American Jewish experience, but one, you know, with, uh, with the, a sort of Mizrahi overlay. And I think that really formed my identity as not just a Jew, but as a Zionist. Um, when I was um, 18 years old, All of a sudden, I had this very intense desire to go to Israel, and I spent my sophomore year at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And so obviously that was a formative experience. When I got back to Ohio State, I decided I was really going to be a pro-Israel activist. And I started to commit to memory, you know, all the arguments that I would need to be a pro-Israel activist, and uh, went out there and did that and became one of the leading campus activist of my time, which was during the first Intifada in, you know, 1987 and the like. So I I had shortly thereafter um, a love affair with Israel and, you know, went back and forth and spent a lot of time there. And so my Zionism is an integral part of my Jewish identity as well. From there, I, I pursued what I knew best, which was to be an advocate for the Jewish people. And my entire career really has been spent in the Jewish world, I, um, I I spent some time working on a political campaign in 1992, uh, but I did Jewish outreach. I spent some time at APAC. I spent some time at the Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Washington for three years. And then at a, the tender age of 30, I was director of the American Jewish Committee Regional Office of um, Washington. So I so from, you know, and I, again, I, you, you said in my bio, but I just want to say that, you know, I've been a Jewish advocate my entire life. And only recently in the last two years, I've sort of gone in a different direction. I'm still very much a Jewish advocate, but in a way, you could say sometimes in opposition to the establishment rather than being part of the establishment.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I think that that is the way to go, really, is to get experience at the establishment level and then go off on your own. Um, And it's funny because I'm from Ohio also. We grew up very similar. We almost met each other probably (laughs) many times. We probably Uh, did. You were always leaving as I was coming just a few years later. So, um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you think having that Midwest sensibility has helped your work at all? You know, I've always loved being
0: in the Midwest. I think people are very nice and down to earth. I also think that they're less prone to... Ideological extremes. So, um, you know, when mm-hmm. I went to a um, a Hillel national conference when I was, you know, whatever 19, 20 years old, and I came into contact with all these kids from the Mid-Atlantic region, New York, Boston, and the like, they were sort of much more they were they were much more progressive and ideological than I was, even even back then. And so, I think that that mainstream sensibility has always stuck with me. I've I'd, I'd never I've never been prone to extreme ideologies, either on the far
1: right or the far left. Yeah, I mean, it's very different in in the Midwest. You don't have a couple dozen different types of Judaism. It's really just like a couple synagogues, and you're going to try to make something work. And I think people become a little bit more pragmatic sometimes. And, um, you know, there's no wrong or right way to do it, but I think it does help to maybe enforce unity a little bit more. Um, so what yes. would you... What led you to start Jewish Institute for Liberal Values? I know when I, so many people agree with me, when you first discover this organization, it's like, oh my gosh, this exists. Thank goodness, this (laughs) is exactly what a lot of people really want. So tell us about that part of your journey. Sure. So um, I spent my, you know,
0: up until 2021, the last five years at the Jewish Council for Public Affairs um, and mostly progressive Jewish advocacy work, working on domestic policy issues like criminal justice reform and immigrant rights and, you know, anti-Semitism and racism and the like, and of course Israel and Israel advocacy. Um, but I started to feel that it was becoming increasingly ideologically charged that um, in order to be active in these spaces, one had to sort of renounce America as a white supremacist state. And that wasn't the case before, you know, one, could do this type of domestic policy advocacy and work with other ethnic, religious, racial communities, and find common cause. And it didn't really matter what your politics were, what your opinions were about what the causes of disparity are. But all of a sudden this ideology was starting to set in. I really started to notice the ideology taking hold um, when I was at the David Project uh, doing Israel education and advocacy training for, for college students from 2010 to 2015. Um, In the latter part of that time, around 2013, 2014, you really could feel the shift in attitudes on college campus. Students were becoming more and more ideological. All of a sudden they were really talking about, you know, press versus oppressor. That wasn't the case when I first got there in 2010, and I felt like you had a lot more to work with. You could sort of tell the pro-Israel story on campus, and not that everybody – bought in but at least you made some headway and we were making headway but I started to see that wane in my last couple years there I really felt this huge huge shift and um and I felt that even more acutely when I was at the Jewish Council for Public Affairs I felt that even in the Jewish community was becoming more ideological in the in the post-George Floyd era all of a sudden people were were calling America a systemically racist country not just saying that there's racism in America, which I think we can all agree, but, but really claiming that America was racist from top to bottom in every single respect, that that was who we were. And I thought that was overstating the problem, and I didn't think it was the right social model for overcoming whatever tensions exist between groups in this country. I thought it closed the door to dialogue. And it, and I thought the Jewish community itself was short-circuiting its own internal deliberations on these issues. And then to make matters worse, I started to see that left-wing antisemitism as right-wing antisemitism was on the rise. Um, you could really feel it. Um, and, um, and so I, I left in um, February, 2021. And uh, by the time I started this new institute, which is really to, to, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, was really to reclaim viewpoint diversity within the Jewish community, which I thought really had shrunk in the last several years. But I also realized that we had to fight this variant of anti-Semitism that was emerging right out of this social justice ideology that I was feeling. Um, And in May 2021, right when we were launching the organization, there was another round of conflict between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. And it was like no other round of conflict I ever saw, not not on the ground, but now it was being portrayed in the media, both in the uh, mainstream media and on social media. And all of a sudden, Israel was not given any leeway to defend itself and was called, you know an oppressor. So I think that were, those were really formative times. And I realized that we really had a big problem on our hand, And it, it was
1: a problem that many Jews were not willing to face head on. I didn't think about the timing of that with May 21 being right at the beginning of when you were doing this. It feels like you guys have been around so much longer. So w- what a beginning. <laughs> Um, how do you define Jewish liberalism, you personally, and how do you think it's changed over the last 50 years? Or more more importantly, I think we know what, how it's changed, but why do you think it's changed so much over the last yeah. 50 years? Because it, it's been this feeling that a lot of us have that we've been kind of like the frogs in the boiling water, not realizing this has been creeping around. But when I talk to activists that have been around for 20 years, People, including yourself, were saying all the right things years ago, but maybe not everybody was listening. They weren't listening. So let's, first of all,
0: define the term liberalism, what I mean by liberalism. I know it's a word that's used to describe different things. By liberal, some people mean left to center uh, or left wing or progressive. When I'm talking about liberal in the classical sense, I'm talking about the free exchange of ideas, the, um, the rule of law, um, I'm talking about th- that fundamental operating system in American and Western societies that allows our democratic life to, to flourish. That's what I'm talking about. And I think J- Jews in America and around the world really have always thrived under those circumstances where there's, a, where there's freedom. Um, Natan Sharansky, the great Soviet refusenik, talks about this extensively. He wrote about it in the foreword to my book, Woke Antisemitism. That um, that you know, in free societies, Jews thrive. And when in societies that are not free, where you can't go in the middle of the public square and say what you think, and I, increasingly, I'm I'm worried that that's becoming America. Certainly was the case in Soviet Union. It was certainly the case in a lot of places where Jews have historically lived. And those places Jews haven't done well. And so I think we have a major right. stake in making sure that we live in a liberal society. Also, though, Jews have had a special relationship to liberalism in our own tradition we call it machloket l'shem shemaim, arguments for the sake of heaven. And this is really embedded in the Talmudic tradition where, you know, we argue, Jews argue. That's, that's, uh, that's in our cultural DNA. Um, and, um, and I think it's, it's central to who we are, to our identity um, to argue about issues so that we can find the truth. So to me, when, Jews are under pressure not to argue about certain issues that have been supposedly resolved when people are saying there's only one way to look at complex social dynamics and so forth. That's not just an assault on the American liberal democratic system, which it is, but it's to me, and it's not just an assault on my Judaism, it is, but it's also something that we can internalize and it, and it means that we're no longer who we were. We're, we're, we're giving into societal pressures that actually take us off our own identity. And I think that's one of the problems in this current ideological moment.
1: Absolutely. And one of the questions that came in from our audience, Matthew, asked how do we deal with major anti-Semitism coming from the right that aligns with conservatives in bashing the woke? And, I mean, that's part of a larger thing with weird, strange bedfellows right now because we, we have it from the left, we have it from the right, And we don't really have unity working together. Everybody enjoys uh, fighting the other anti-Semites. You know, it's like our anti-Semites are not so bad. Yours are worse. And um, we waste time talking about that. How do we get past that? Because so many times we talk about the problem, but we don't talk about solutions. So I want to really get into leadership solutions. What do do you think about that? Sure. Well, first of all, let me say that I I completely agree with what you said, that
0: you have the left pointing at the left, and you have the right pointing at the right. My organization, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, actually did a poll on this. You can find the poll at jilv.org backslash poll. And if you look down toward the end, you know, in the slides that we have up online, you'll see that actually Americans all, you know, by a large majority think that there's an anti-Semitism problem in America, but conservatives blame the left, and the left blames conservatives. So you <laughs> see how this dynamic is playing out, and it plays out, in the Jewish community as well. Uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, likes to say that anti-Semitism on the left is like climate change, and anti-Semitism on the right is like a hurricane. And in other words, on the right, it's violent, it's very fast-moving. On the left, it's slow-moving but corrosive. I think that's a perfectly apt analogy. But the problem is that we're willing to talk about the causes and the ideological underpinnings of anti-Semitism on the right. We're, we're willing to talk about the great replacement theory which holds that Jews are helping replace ordinary Americans with immigrants and the like. And all those conspiracy theories that fuel anti-Semitism on the right. What we're much more reluctant to do is to talk about the ideological CO2 emissions that produce the climate change on the left. And I would argue that that's wokeism. That's, that's whatever we choose to call it, that's a touchy word these days, but But whatever, you know, that that this ideology which has taken hold in society, which really emphasizes the binary between oppressed and oppressor, which believes that any successful group is privileged and the like, that 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 ideology inevitably leads Jews to being linked with privilege. Jewish identity becomes linked with privilege and oppression. And I think that's fueling the anti-Semitism on the left. So what do I think we can do about it? What I think we can do about it is we've got to rebuild the American center. In other words, I don't believe that any one tactic or strategy um, is really going to make huge headway as long as we have an extremely polarized country, as long as there's this almost cycle of extremism where the left makes the right angry and the right then makes the left angry, and that we have people unable to talk to each other. Those are not the conditions in which Jews thrive. So what I would, what I believe is that we need to start building, rebuilding an American center. And by American center, I don't mean you know, equidistant from the right or left on any policy issue. I mean, people who are fundamentally capable of talking to each other, engaging in democratic life. And I think we've got, and I'm not talking about a third party in politics. I mean, sure, if it ever happens, but rather, um, rather um, start finding our friends um, in the center left and the center right. Asian Americans who also share our concerns, Latino Americans, uh, many of whom share our concerns, many black Americans who don't, like right-wing extremism, to be sure, but also don't want their kids to be taught that the system is rigged against them. Um, So there's a lot of ethnic communities, there's a lot of ordinary Americans who are quite normy and um, are quite able to talk to each other, and we've got to create those spaces and build on them and make that the prominent voice in politics.
1: You know, I think we need to stop looking at allyship and problems as demographics and instead embrace more of a psychographic model and I know you and I have talked about some of this stuff before that I mean if the psychographic is just a quality of like are they risk adverse are they not risk adverse are they willing to have courage and stand up or are they going to be more of a passive follower susceptible to indoctrination there's so many things that and every culture has that every ethnic group has those people and And there's crazy extremists in every culture and religion and demographic too. And so how can we isolate those psychographics as opposed to this demographic model? Because it seems like the problem is coming from this hyper demographic distribution, which is so strange to me because we were making so many strides embracing the psychographic model. You follow me with with all of that? Mm -hmm. And so it's just, how do we get back to that? I mean, it's it's a greater conversation of how we stratify things. I feel like with technology, we have so many options, it's overwhelming. And so there's this tendency to want to then simplify, but that's not working so well in, in a social construct. So how do we find yeah. our psychographic partners? Yeah, so I think,
0: you know, you have to start somewhere. I I look at ethnic communities that have similar experiences in, on the American scene. So. If you're an Asian American community, you come to this country, you're working hard to make it, you're working to make sure your kids have every opportunity in front of them, and then you're all of a sudden confronted by a school system that wants to teach you that everybody's a, either an, oppress, or an oppressor and they're getting rid of all the, you know, the gifted and talented programs and they're teaching um, you know, that, uh, that math is a white supremacy value and what have you, those are people you can find because they're upset by similar situation, and so I'm looking for those people. I'm looking for the people who pushed the San Francisco recall effort, um, and in when when there were all these schools that were being renamed in San Francisco from Thomas Jefferson School to whatever else, and who kept schools almost permanently closed. These are people that push back against that. Those are our new allies. They're not. Right wingers, by yeah. the way. They're not left wingers. They're just, um, so you have to start somewhere. You have to build a movement. And when you do it that way, and I know I'm still sort of stuck in the demographic mold with a psychographic overlay, but when you do it that way, you're, you're also sending the message to society that you can't essentialize any one of these ethnic groups, that we're all diverse, that there's not one way of being black or being Jewish or being Chinese or being Indian or being Latino. And um, and and we're we're sending the message that there are there are African Americans who don't want the system to be don't want their kids to be taught the system is rigged against them that there are Jews who may be liberal in orientation but still are very are very open to multiplicity of ideas There are Asian Americans who think differently than than um, than the party line so let's 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 help expose that and then build a movement around that. Um, and, you know, it can be, it doesn't have to be with ethnic communities, it can be with anybody,
1: but I think it's a good place for us to start. No, absolutely. And, you know, it, it gets really frustrating when people have done a lot to help themselves and, and they're getting punished for being a survivor of something. It's really brutal when you see a victim re-victimized. And some cultures have different ways they stigmatize issues of trauma of mental health more than others and then it seems like I mean let's talk a little bit about the basics of woke ideology and in your book woke anti-semitism you know this idea of like some people really embracing the victim identity comes at an expense of harming those who may be stigmatized their victim identity, I really think that there are people that embrace stoicism, that embrace other things, some more than others, Mm -hmm. That no one's a monolith, but I I, I don't want to use the word bootstrap, because that gets negative things now, too, but, you know, you shouldn't be punished if you overcame something through pure merit, through survival of the fittest, and you made it through, and you made something of yourself, whether it's that you made money, or now people hate people with money, or whatever the situation, It's not quite right to do that. So why are we going to a victim thing? Well, I I don't want to answer my other question, but, you know, Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about specifics and how it spread and to what degree has the Jewish community bought into it?
0: Yeah, it seems like,
1: you know, cultures change and emphasize different
0: almost personal attributes. So while at one point society might have leaned into the culture of the Stoic, we are now uh, leaning into the culture of the neurotic, you know, the, the the we're leaning into our anxiety, and we're creating a society in which we sort of incentivize people to um, to you know express their anxiety rather than overcome it. Um, and of course, like you know, maybe there needed to be a corrective to that. Maybe we needed to be a, a gentler society, um, but that doesn't mean that we we didn't overcorrect by a long shot. Um, and um, so I think there has been a cultural shift in that way. Um, I think um, what you had was an ideology that originated really in the academy going back in the late 1960s, which was based on postmodern ideology, postmodernism, this idea that, you know, that, uh, that knowledge is socially constructed by the powerful classes of people, and, um, and therefore it, it's perpetuated in our discourse and, um, and used to keep certain groups up and certain groups down. And that led to what I would call in its most activist form, woke ideology. And, you know, it's a controversial term now. We don't have to use it. I'll call it whatever you want. Just I need to call it something. Um, but what I mean by woke ideology are two basic views, tenets. One is that prejudice and oppression and bigotry are not just a matter of one's personal attitude, but they're embedded in the very structures and systems of society. So when we say the term systemic racism, for example, we're talking about that. The second major tenet is that only people with lived experience of oppression are able to articulate it for the rest of society. And if you don't have lived experience, then you don't even know what it is. You can't even recognize it. Now, both of those things can be true. Like it can be true that that oppression is ingrained in the very fabric of society. And we've seen that before, Jim Crow America for sure, and Nazi Germany. I mean, how could you say that anti-Semitism wasn't ingrained in the fabric of society? Um, and it also can be true that people with lived experience of prejudice and discrimination have something to say about it, right? You know, I'm, I'm a Jew who grew up with a lot of anti-Semitism. I mean, that was part of my Midwestern experience, too, at least where I grew up and how I grew up. And there were a lot of, you know, coins thrown in my feet and swastikas written in my books. I mean, you know, people could say it was a joke, but didn't feel like a joke when you're mm-hmm. 13. Um, and, um, um, but, and so I have something to say about it, but my experience might be a little different than your moral or somebody else's. And so it's not like there's one Jewish experience of anti-Semitism that I can articulate for the whole society. I can just tell you what I, what I see, you know, what I felt, what I've experienced. But there are other data points as well. For example, when the Pew survey found that uh, in 2019, American Jews were the most admired religious community in the United States. That's at odds <laughs> with my lived experience, and I have to be able to take that into account as well. So I think that this is where the ideology gets off track. It states that only people who have been oppressed can, can have a, a legitimate opinion on oppression. And so they, they try to shut down the discourse. That becomes the source of cancel culture. And I think that's and why that, our discourse has really been led astray.
1: Yeah, I really have a problem with the lived experience part of that. Because, I mean, that goes against everything I've ever known or that I teach about empathy. When you say that nobody can weigh in on anything or relate to anything, unless they have lived experience, you're predetermining that it's impossible for a society to have empathy. And that's just wrong. You know, It's almost like the bigotry of low expectations. You're just saying, there's right. no way you can do this. We can't trust you. Don't even try to have empathy. Just just know your place. Well, and and if, you do,
0: if you do pretend to, be able to diagnose what ails us in society and you're not one of the marginalized groups, then you're speaking out of privilege um, because you you don't have the standing to be able to articulate that. So if I wanted to say something about crime rates in the inner city and so forth, you could be accused of being a racist if you don't toe the party line, or you could be accused of speaking out of privilege. And I think that's, Highly problematic, and I think we should push back against that. it doesn 't mean that we shouldn 't make an extra effort to listen to people who have lived experience, right so if I talk to a young African American man who tells me that he 's pulled over by cops a lot, you know, I, it may not inform everything I think I know about policing and, and inner city communities, but at least I want to know what their experience is, and I want to listen carefully to it. so I do think that there's some value in that, but so much of this this sort of woke discourse takes something that could be insightful, an insight, and turns it into some grand axiom that pretends to be able to explain all of reality. So it's like that with intersectionality. You know, the original form of intersectionality was the idea that if you were both black and a woman, you faced sort of double jeopardy, and that you were not being that, so that, and that you faced added oppression than if you were just black or a woman. Um, and um, and that you know I think there was some insight into that that original understanding of it, but then of course you take they, they, they took this idea of intersectionality and they turned it into like a this theory that linked everybody's identity to whatever privileges or oppression that they face. And the, you know right. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but in, um you know, they they are these sort of wheels of intersectionality where where you're mapping out right. like if you're Jewish you are, I mean if you're white you have privilege if you're heterosexual you have privilege if you're if you're trans you you're oppressed and, and it t- it tells you exactly where you are based on what your identity is. I
1: think mean, that's just well they re- well, they reduce it to a meme. It's like I could take a quiz on Facebook that you know tells me are you this or that. It reduces it to a silly pop quiz in a way based on flawed logic, which I'm curious as a philosophy professor, any thoughts you have on that, you know, just, just mass psychosis of flawed logic here, but I can't, I can't get away from the empathy piece because to me, it maybe it's oversimplifying it, but so much of this is everybody focuses on the problem and not enough solution. I think even Kimberly Crenshaw, doesn't identify with where her theory has been taken. Now, the the person who started intersectionality. But with all of that, the solution is to breed more empathy, to have empathy for the very people that are victimized. Uh, I think everything starts out in a good way, in a sincere way, but then somehow we fall off the rails. And the whole way is to have people feel that. And so it's frustrating for me when I see a lot of us giving empathy to other groups and the idea that, well, you don't need it because you're doing well. And who says everybody's doing well? I mean, I, right. the last time I saw the statistics, 40% of Jews are upper income. That's true. But just as many percentage-wise of Jews uh, consume social services, uh, Medicaid, welfare, uh, food stamps in proportion to every other demographic. Maybe we're just not talking about it. And maybe we are part of the problem because we stigmatize that. But if we are ourselves projecting some of these things, then I want to know what can we do about it? Because we've all talked about the problem to death. What can actually be done? And I I think if we don't re-embrace a relationship with empathy, I I think think we're doing okay. But I think when other people shut that down based on this flawed logic, I don't know how you can get around it. This is like a tsunami wave. You know, we have some buckets here. I think you have to challenge it head on. I think you have to say that
0: I disagree with that. I, or I think one of my favorite phrases these days is not to say I disagree with you, but it's I think about it differently. And then explain yeah. how you think about it differently. And, I, 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 you know, by, by the way, the, 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 this idea of empathy really plays out in the arts. So you have these writers who are not, mm-hmm. you know, if you're white, you can't write a black character, or you can't, if you're man, you can't write a female character. I mean, imagine what that does to the artistic imagination when, when uh, people are told that they can only stay in their own lane. The idea of literature, the idea of the arts, is to be able to transcend your own experience and to understand the world from somebody else's perspective. That makes us empathetic. Exactly. The arts help us think about that. They bring to life how others look at the, situa- at, at the world. And here we are telling people that they have to stay in their own lane artistically. Which to me is just tragic, and it's it's kind of crazy that there aren't more writers and authors who are saying, "Over my body, am I going to stay within that?" and and that there aren't more publishers that are willing to to take risks on that because I don't think anybody wants to read, you know, some hyper woke author talking about you know, their own, uh, uh, just their own oppression. I mean, that can be, if they're brilliant and maybe, they're, you know, there, there's room for it, but 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 that's it's becoming sort of, you know, Johnny One Note out there. And um, and I think yeah. that's going to devastate the arts. So I think we, we, we it's definitely... Oh, it already has. <clears throat> it already has,
1: yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's, so, so it's the 20th century with the arts and really everything else because art shaped culture. It was really going from... Conformity to celebrating non-conformity, and then at some point with non-conformity, if everybody has the same tattoos, if everybody has the same belly button rings and those piercings, and you know the same counterculture, then it's conformity at some point. And if you're the ordinary person saying, "Hey, wait a minute," raising your hand, you're actually the non-conformist. But it may take a while right. before before that's seen, and it, it can be very lonely to be that person out there um you know and i really think a lot of this is because of of technology i'm curious if you have any thoughts on change management theory with all of this i mean some of this is i don't think all of this has to do with jews i think some of this is just this moment in time um the technological revolution has completely changed so much of we have all this information and less critical thinking than ever because we've we've outsourced So much of what we do, and I know our friend Jessica Imami, you know, she's a maven on all of this technology stuff. I love talking to her about that. It's just, you know, when you you outsource your thinking for so many things all day long, whether it's using a calculator or remembering a phone number or so many, you know, a spell check, so many different things, is it really such a stretch to outsource really big decisions when it comes to social Thinking. um I'm just curious. Yeah. I want to. I want to exploit I, your I'm a bit, philosophy
0: I'm a bit torn on today. I'm a bit torn on it because I'm not 100 percent sure we become worse critical thinkers. I just think in previous eras, you know, where when we grew up, you know, when uh, Walter Cronkite or then Dan Rather were telling us uh, what the news was every day, there was sort of a unified narrative, and as a result, people didn't need critical thinking to. To understand what was happening around them, and an era of fake news, of, of profound fragmentation and polarization, when no one, there's not one mediator out there to tell us what's true and what's not, all of a sudden we're really feeling the lack of critical thinking in society acutely. Um, so that's my mm-hmm. theory. I'm not sure. It's, I'm not sure we've seen critical thinking go down. I just don't think we have the requisite skills to deal with the information chaos that we're experiencing right now. And I think we have to, in order to deal with it, part of me thinks one of the solutions is to try to ratchet up and scale critical thinking in society before, you know, we're destroyed by the current, um, by the current, you know, polarization. Um, now that's not easy to do and may not even be doable. You know, um, I don't know if, a critical mass of society is capable of critical thinking. I mean, I can speculate that it is, but that doesn't make it so. I don't know that there's a society on earth, if you ask, are the majority of people, or close to the majority of people critical thinkers? I would, I've would. i never seen one, and if I have to guess, I would guess it's around 15 to 20 percent maximum of society are critical thinkers. So how do you get it to 40 or 60 percent? I think it would, it would stabilize us. People would be able to know what's, True. What's false? Or they, at least they know what they don't know, and um, and it would allow us to um, compare the society that we have to other models. It would it would help us, you know, it would help us deal with some of these controversies and to avoid some of the more extremist elements. But I don't think we're there yet, and I don't know exactly how you get there. I'd like to start and and get um and, and how do you measure
1: people. it? Yeah, that's a very thing hard thing measure. to measure. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. You, know, you know, very interesting. Years ago, I, 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 I spent a lot of time thinking about critical thinking. And I was talking to a public school official who said, yeah, and we're going to be starting to incorporate critical thinking into the curriculum. And when I started to ask her what it was, I clearly, the way that she understood critical thinking and that way I understand critical thinking were totally different. And it was something that they needed to test through, like, you know, the, and, and, and once you, you you realize that they're not really testing critical thinking, the, and 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 the part part of the problem, quite honestly, um, is that I'm sure I'm not sure a lot of the educators that are that are trying to teach critical thinking are critical thinkers. Some of them are, but many
1: aren't. Yeah. So I, I don't I, I don't know. It's that that's that's going to be a really hard nut to crack. Isn't Noam Chomsky teaching a master course on that now too?
0: Which is yeah, I keep of... on
1: getting that on Facebook. <laughs> I don't know that Uh, I want
0: his variety of critical thinking. Um, There's one other aspect I want to say that when I realize when I'm talking to people on the far left, they'll say, oh, I'm for critical thinking as well. But I realize is that we're defining critical thinking in almost opposing ways. Um, For them, Mm -hmm. they're using the term critical as in critical ideology, right, where where they're saying we have to – critical thinking means being able to see the systems of oppression around you and being aware of how you, who's in charge and who's oppressing others. For me, critical thinking is objectivity. It's learning to compare and contrast ideas and so forth. It's a completely different enterprise than the way they're
1: using that term. So I'm not even sure we all agree on what critical thinking is. That's so important. That's why I always like to ask how people define their terms. I mean, you know, an argument is not an, always a negative thing. It's traditionally just a debate a positive thing even. So people have really different ways of defining things in the populace of ideas, that for sure. So I wanna talk I wanna really get into the, the ethnic studies and how the, what's what's coming down the pipeline in education. So maybe before that we should talk about how all of this is specifically fomenting anti Semitism, anti Zionism. And the dangers, particularly for American Jews and the diaspora, can you kind of set the stage? uh, Because for anyone unfamiliar with ethnic studies and the anti-Semitism systemic in our state curriculums um, from K-12 to to the college levels, there's, there's some disturbing stuff that is now being pushed in Princeton, in other places. And I mean, people are learning some really awful things that it's just pure propaganda. So um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So
0: we talked a little bit about how this ideology might foment anti-Semitism. When you have an ideology that divides the world into the oppressors and oppressed, and you look at oppressors as anybody with success or financial resources, Jews are going to be easily linked to the oppressor class. So let's just start there. When you link identity to privilege as this sort of current, this, this radical social justice ideology does, Jewish identity is going to be easily linked to Jewish privilege, even if it's not always stated so explicitly. It's how we're going to be viewed in the pantheon of organizations and communities and the like on the American scene. So that's, that's number one. Um, Number two, you know, um, this concept of equity that Ibram X. Kendi, the writer and professor, has been talking about the idea that equity is when any groups, when, when groups have approximate proportionate representation in any field. That's what equity is. And anytime there's lack of proportional representation, that by definition, according to Kendi, is racism. So when you look at that, you have to ask yourself, well, if the only reason why a group isn't doing as well as another group is because they're being oppressed or discriminated against. That means that the groups that are doing better than average are part of the oppression. They're complicit in oppression. So it's easy to see how Jews are going to be linked with the oppressors if that's your definition of equity or fairness. Um, you know, in, in this worldview, anti-Semitism is not always taken very seriously. So you know, Jews are viewed as a privileged class. If your definition of racism is, or oppression is, racism equals prejudice plus power, that means that if you're right. a powerful group, you really can't be a victim of racism. And if you're considered one of those powerless groups, you can't really be a victimizer. So Jews do not fare well in that at all, because we're, we're perceived as having power. So can we really be vulnerable? And you'll see people treat anti-Semitism as sort of a lesser prejudice in all this. The other aspect of this, and I'm, there's many more, and you could really spend a lot of time talking about this, is that there 's an insistence that Jews are white or Jews are complicit in whiteness, and the idea is that whiteness is you know this great moral evil it 's kind of an irony that when when whiteness was considered a moral good, jews weren't considered white when now that whiteness is considered an un- unmitigated moral evil by some, Jews are being defined as white. Right. And um, and and unfortunately, you know, and I don't think that you should play by those roles. Like I don't, I don't, you know, maybe because I'm half Iraqi, but also just because I don't have to buy into that framework of being white. I don't answer that question on the census anymore. I don't check off the box that says I'm white anymore. I don't want to be mm-hmm. defined that way. I don't want others to define me at, by my race, um, whatever that happens.
1: Let's segue on that in terms of Leadership. I mean, because how do we do that? It seems like we are passively allowing other people to define us and then just agreeing with it, like, well, okay, seeing ourselves through other people's eyes instead of really owning our own narrative. And that's what everybody else is doing, rightfully so. And yet we seem to be actually giving our power away in terms of personal yeah. power. And that's a psychographic weakness. That's also to the Jewish identity piece. And when I first got your book, that was the first chapter I read, your piece about the assault on Jewish pride, on Jewish identity, although it's been happening for quite a while. Can we yeah, There have been other that? versions
0: of it, too, in America and other places where Jews have lived. Um, not Wilf, the Israeli thinker and former member of Knesset,
1: I mm-hmm. uh, like to say like, that Jews
0: yeah, has to give their pay their pound of flesh. And I think we have, you know, in twentieth in century America, um, where we weren't really allowed to easily identify on ethnic lines, you were told like you could be a Protestant, Catholic, or Jew. We were put into a religious frame. And by allowing ourselves to be defined as a religion or a religion only, we were sort of giving up some aspect of our identity in order to fit in. So I think that, you know, there are different versions of that throughout history, and in a way that's happening. Now we're um, we're being told that you know we have to identify in this in, in the according to this sort of hierarchy of oppression and where we fall on it and where based on whether we're white or not or whether we're perceived as white or not and and I think that that takes a toll. Like how do you how do you make a young Jewish person feel good about being Jewish if they're told that they've been they and their forebears were complicit in white supremacy or in whiteness? And um, and so I think Jewish leadership today should be to define ourselves in our own terms. We don't have to follow the scripts that others have given us.
1: Yeah, and this ties in to my interview last month with Rabbi Danny Schiff. He wrote the book about Judaism in a digital age, and you know, there are rabbis predicting that conservative and reformed Judaism is really going to dissipate within only a matter of decades. Depressing as that sounds, it's going to go more back to basics and. I had been very critical of the Pittsburgh platform and things like that, that took us away from that identity. But he and some of the other people I've interviewed have helped me understand why that was necessary. You know, they were doing the best they could to make it at the time. And at that moment, assimilation was really crucial to be part of a new world, but modernity is over if he talks about. And so now it's like, okay, we've assimilated. Where do we go from here? If we, Don't get away from universalism and back to some form of particularism that may be a new form of Judaism not even invented yet. Just being part of the fringes of a society, has that ever worked out for us? I don't think so. Um, we, We have to have something to go back to. And we also have to have educational systems, not just externally but also internally, that are promoting that Jewish identity. You have something you do. I've heard you talk about on Shabbat, you like to ask people questions and you get people to talk. Was well, everybody doing that? Maybe not. So, you know, this is part well, of that. That's, that's the a kind of thing that could village. be,
0: right, that, that could be the kind of thing that we that becomes central to who we are as Jews, and we really try to inculcate that. Um, we, we just did a, a video that you can find on the YouTube channel Unpacked with Open Door Media, it's a group that does Jewish educational videos and educational resources for the Jewish community. And we did one on Our Jews Privileged and sort of on what we're talking about today. And we say, like, part of being a Jew is to, is to stand outside of societal norms and trends and fads and to, and, and to articulate an independent perspective. Um, Charles Small from ISCAP, uh, is these days talking about Jewish consciousness and, rather than Jewish pride or Jewish identity. What is the Jewish consciousness like? And I mean, they're still sort of fleshing it out, and I really like that term, and it's the kind of thing that would pertain to, like, you know, having a Shabbat dinner where we debate issues. You know, that's part of what a Jewish consciousness is. It's what it means to to think and be like a Jew in the modern world, And I uh, and I think that's the kind of thing we should try to build on. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I'm looking forward to sort of exploring it with others as
1: well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, my, my dad always made us watch the news on multiple channels so that we would hear everything and even the people that we hated, <laughs> you know, just to, to understand the argument so that you could Defeated, um, and you know he'd always play devil's advocate, which I, I thought was like my dad. But I didn't realize that was a Jewish thing—not just my dad, right? <laughs> um, right. So, so let's let's talk about the ethnic studies, uh, and you know, in California is sort of the epicenter, and as California goes, the rest of education often goes. Can you break it down for our listeners? What is going on with ethnic studies? It's in the college level versus K to 12, there's some very disturbing things happening, and also, what can they do?
0: Very disturbing things. So
1: um, what you have was,
0: uh, you know, this idea of ethnic studies, and by ethnic studies, it's not just understanding or discussing or learning about other ethnicities. It's this idea that we're living in a power-based society where all differences can be explained by who has power and who doesn't. It's a whole philosophy, really. More than anything else, it's a critical consciousness that grows out of sort of neo-Marxist ideology. Um, it's It's been around um, since the late 1960s, and it's sort of infiltrated higher education beginning in like 1958 in these various ethnic studies programs that started entering the university. And it was always their idea, the people behind it would always talk about the long march through institutions, that they were going to influence institutions slowly but surely until the people agreed with them and and we 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 recreated our understanding of what it was to live in our society and um and um that that ideology has now in the post george floyd moment taken root in k-12 education beginning in california so the state of california passed an ethnic studies model curriculum that mandates that every public school teach ethnic studies now you can say okay what's wrong with that isn't that just multicultural studies no, it really is a radical understanding of the world. It teaches kids to recognize and resist systems of oppression as if they know exactly what those systems of oppression are. So it's not, it doesn't, it's, it's really inimical to critical thinking. It, it teaches that countries like the United States and Israel are, uh, are settler colonialist states. That means that they're, they're illegitimate states that have taken over other people's lands and settled them in kicked out the inhabitants, the indigenous inhabitants. Um, it, it downplays the role of let's say the mainstream civil rights leaders and, and, and then plays up the role of really radical voices within black power movement and the like. Um, it, it talks a lot about how the, you know, the global north oppresses the global south. So it's a whole ideology that's been around a long time that's now making inroads into the mainstream and is now in this California K through 12 curriculum and district by district, uh, they're adopting new courses or they're integrating these ideas into their existing courses. And as you said before, you know, what's, what starts in California never stays in California. It's like avocado toast or, you know, the housewives of Orange County, all of a sudden it's in your city as well. And, you know, um, and um, so we're seeing it in Boston, Massachusetts and St. Paul, Minnesota and, you know, in, in cities around the United States are starting to look at ethnic studies. And it's I think it's a real and present danger for the Jewish community. The more radical versions will teach explicitly that Israel is a settler colonial state and they'll delegitimize Jewish statehood. And the less radical versions oftentimes just teach these ideas and condition people to think, that either you're part of the oppressor class or the oppressed class. And it's only a half step from there that you end up with Israel or uh, Jews being the oppressor. So I think it, that it, well, a lot of – yeah, one, one last point here. A lot of American Jews and Jewish organizations have have sort of satisfied themselves to think that they if they can just get them to stop talking about Jews or Israel, we'll be okay with all this craziness. I think that's a mistake because if they're teaching this radical ideology, even if they successfully – get them to say we're not going to teach about Israel, you'll end up looking at Israel and Jews as being part of the oppressor class.
1: Well and you can't you can't just keep moving the goalpost. If you do this, it's, it'll be fine. If you do that, it's like has it when has it ever been enough? It, it's it's never enough. We have to divine ourselves on our own terms. And just to put it in human terms, Club Z, Misha Merkelova, she told me some amazing stories, just I mean, just what the kids are going through. Really upsets me. I never went through anything like this with you know, throwing pennies at people, yelling oven, oven, oven. I mean, I, I can't believe this is happening. I, I, uh, I did live. It,
0: I did have that growing up. That that to me was um, was, was, was I had that a lot growing up. Um, but but we're dealing now with a different kind of anti-Semitism. In addition to, not instead of. In addition to, it's now viewing Jews as part of the oppressor class. It's, uh, it's, it's a different variant of anti-Semitism. It's viewing ourselves as being complicit in white supremacy. And by white supremacy, of course, they don't mean the kind with white hoods on their head marching with tiki torches you know, outside of the synagogue. No, they mean, they mean the sort of hidden systems of oppression that are in every nook and cranny of American society and, and that, that keep certain groups down and other groups up. That's what they're talking about. And we get right. implicated in that very easily. And that's now spreading through our school system. And we're only just now seeing some of the effects. But this is a really big long-term danger. And you're seeing in other ways, too. There's, this, there, there's going to be a conference in October at both NYU Law School and at University of California, Santa Cruz, on critical Zionist studies. This is right out of the Soviet playbook. And the Soviet Union, you know, beginning right. in 1960, an entire field called Zionology which was to delink the idea of Zionism from Judaism and, um, and to attack the legitimacy of Zionism in Israel as a Jewish state, that's now being done in, you know, potentially in U.S. colleges. They're trying to launch this new field of critical Zionist studies. And I think we've got to push back against this in a big way. And I think we've got to push back against the spread of ethnic studies in a big way. I think a lot of American Jewish organizations are just worried about alienating their traditional progressive allies. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to create division and, um, and so they go along with it at the end of the day and that's tragic.
1: And this is where I think we need to think on a psychographic model instead of a demographic model about who our allies actually are and embrace some strange bedfellows sometimes. Um, I think this is a resistance we have. If Christians and evangelicals are standing up for us more, then I don't think we should be rejecting that. Uh, there's some very courageous Muslims who risk everything to speak up for us. And I think they deserve a lot more support than they're getting from us. There's a lot of things I think we can look at how we could show up a little bit better because it does take a shtetl to appeal to all of this. I have, there's some other
0: questions. I, w- I would just take uh, it one step further. When, when, before you move on, mm-hmm. I would take it one step further. It's not just that we should be receptive to them. We've got to build this new this new coalition. Um, you know, it's not going to just materialize magically if we don't build it. In other words, we've got to go Great. out and weave the new, the new psychographic coalition that you're talking about, a people, like-minded people who sp- support, um, you know, democratic, liberal values in society that oppose, cancel culture that oppose extremism on the right. We've got to build those allies. Um, and they aren't the usual suspects. Um, and they're not organized yet because they haven't – that's not how people have traditionally organized themselves. But people are starting to feel alienated from both the right and the left. And we've got to take advantage of that and build a movement. Because if we don't, moderates are not going to have a voice. That's the problem. We've got right. to give moderates a voice. And that's how we're going to face down these problems. That, to me, is the answer. It's not easy work. It's not you know, a national anti-Semitism plan that, you know, uh, with, with 50 parts or something. It's not some strategy that, you know, that you can easily implement. It's a long-term repositioning of the Jewish community and a new strategy that allows us to build a new set of partners to face the current strategic environment.
1: I completely agree, and it it is new thinking, And, and this is where, again, I think this is something we have to work through because you see this a lot in DEI, to be specific, where there are some camps that say just completely trash it, start all over with something brand new. And there are other people that say, no, there's too much infrastructure. You're never going to break all that down. You've got to work and revise what's there. It's better to have a seat at the table. And this, this is hard because we're we're having to build on top of other things, and we're doing a little bit of everything. It's, it's messy leadership, but it's still what we need. Right. Do you have any thoughts? using DEI as the example, uh, do you think that DEI would lose appeal once its liberalism is better revealed? Well, I mean, I think we should, you know,
0: we should obviously push strongly for liberal values, and we shouldn't go along with DEI that tells us exactly what we must think and say, and we have to push back against that. What happens on a campus where there's a DEI initiative, do you try to get anti-Semitism as one of the things that they emphasize? And I always tell people it depends on how nutty the DEI initiative is. If it's a little nutty, then maybe work with it. If it's a lot nutty, if it's teaching you that, if it's teaching students that they live in a white supremacist state and that, you know, being on time to class is a white supremacy value, yada, 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 and believe me, that's not rare. I mean, that is a dominant, uh, that's dominant discourse within DEI. Um, then I would tell them, you know, I would say you have to pose that. Like, we're not going to do well in a society that believes that being on time is a white supremacy value. That's not a society you want to live in. And, and, I, and, you know, yes, is it hard to, to go against the juggernaut of DEI? Yes. Do I think that DEI is on the ropes a bit now? I do, actually. I think that some of the recent Supreme Court rulings and the way that people, the, the courts are going to interpret um, the 1964 Civil Rights Act is going to make some of DEI rendered illegal. And so I think we can capitalize on that. And I think we can push back against DEI programs. And you're already seeing corporate America backing off from its DEI. There's been a lot of people who, you know, had great lucrative jobs in DEI right after the George Floyd moment are now, you know, been retrenched. So I'm not so sure that DEI is the juggernaut that some people in the Jewish community make it out. And I don't know why we wouldn't want to be on the right side of history on this one to the degree we can determine that there is a right side of history.
1: So you think we should be in the arena working on it or trying to just get rid of it? I would spend a lot more time trying to get rid of it.
0: And you know, I'm I'm a guy who believes in a diversified portfolio. So if there was, there are some Jewish organizations that want to try to make sure anti-Semitism is part of the mix, fine. But I wouldn't do it if the if it's a crazy DEI program. DEI is not the same everywhere. There are mild forms of it that are not problematic. You want to work with them, fine. I certainly would not oppose ab- abandoning DEI in the universities. I know in certain red states they're going after DEI bureaucracies. I may not like a lot of what those red states are doing in other realms, but I think it's completely legitimate to go after DEI bureaucracies in the universities. They're not protected by academic freedom. They're they are they're absolute coercion machines. Um, they they um, and I don't know why we would feel like that, that they should be protected. Um, wh- why not support efforts to overturn them and come up with a new t- paradigm when possible? There are other times when, can okay, you're living in you know a very blue area with a blue state, and you're not gonna get rid of DEI. Then I can understand the impulse to wanna make sure it doesn't completely go off the rail, but but I, would, I wouldn't do that if
1: it means compromising our own integrity of the process. So if we go with the idea that nature abhors a vacuum, I think it's really important that we have something to replace it with and not just say this is bad because it will be replaced by something, possibly even yes. worse. And I like what, I haven't spoken to him, but Giddy Greenstein, he wrote Flexigidity. His group, the Reut group, they've talked so much about how to fight progressive anti-Semitism. And he talks about using a wedge between, a lot like what you're doing too, with, with between the moderates the centrist and the more radicalized people. Um, and I think that using language is effective. I was always taught that in communication, that you use the other person's argument against them if you can. And it's, I'm amazed at how much pushback you get from this. Um, somebody who I think is doing that really well is Dara Horn. She was telling me about how she does DEI with Google, and she uses the LGBT analogy. And has had a lot of success with that, about how if if you said the same thing you're saying to Zionists, to LGBT people, and basically saying, you know, go back into the closet and you're fine. That would never fly, you know, and there's a lot of examples of that. I I think it's sometimes effective to do that, but I also understand people that are just like, get rid of it, it's a cancer. So, I mean, this has been one of the biggest debates, as you know, we've had in the last year. I
0: struggle with it, too. Again, I'm not saying don't take that strategy that you just described. I'm saying that I I think we put too many of our eggs in that basket, and we don't do enough of just opposing really bad stuff. Let Let me give you an example. If you were in a red state and the school system was adopting an America First curriculum that taught that immigrants were taking the jobs of ordinary Americans, even if they didn't mention Jews in it, I think we'd all be nervous that that... Created a permission structure for anti Semitism on the right. And, and yet, somehow, we feel like we have to reconcile ourselves to really lethal ideological stuff on the left in the way that we don't feel like we need to do on the right, or we would never dream of doing on the right. And I'm saying, look, there's a lot of people who want to get us to reconcile, to get us to influence the discourse from within on the left. And I'm saying, you know, some of what we're, we're doing here is really dangerous stuff. It's not any less dangerous than that America first curriculum on the right. It's teaching people, conditioning people to think in very specific ways that are inimical to our interests and inimical to democratic values and living. And so I'm I'm I would I would try to be on the side as much as we can with those who oppose indoctrination now are there versions of diversity education i don't like to call it training because i don't think you should train people into how to think you can educate people and education means open to alternative approaches are there approaches to diversity that are that are better than others absolutely i mean you can look at the theory of enchantment which is chloe valdery's operation which does very intellectually open and thoughtful diversity training and there's the moral courage college and and there are others as well out there there are practitioners of sort of alternative forms of diversity that I think we should look at and, and to fill the vacuum that you spoke of. But, I, um, but those are all open, intellectually open endeavors. So, of course, I'm going to support those. A lot of what comes under DEI is not intellectually open. It's intellectually falsifying, it's intellectually And I think we shouldn't try to reconcile that because maybe we get Jews portrayed in a slightly better way.
1: Do you think IRA is the best solution to that? And I'm also curious what your thoughts are on the recent nexus definition and the Biden administration. Yeah, so the IRA, look, the
0: IRA definition is a definition of anti-Semitism, right? That's all it is. It's a definition. Now, why do we need a definition of anti-Semitism? Well, first, in European societies, especially where you saw this real resurgence in anti-Zionism activities and real threats to Jewish communities, because of their supposed support for Israel, whatever, you saw this in places like Malmo, Sweden, and the like, where Jewish communities were being threatened. Those societies did not view that as anti-Semitism, so they didn't think that they had to intervene. So you needed a definition of anti-Semitism that included this extreme anti-Zionist activity that was taking place in a lot of societies. Also, you need a definition of anti-Semitism because you have hate crime laws, and in order to establish if someone is, guilty of a hate crime, you have to establish whether they were engaging in hate and, you know, in one form of hatred is anti-Semitism. So how do you, how you decide that? Well, you need a definition. So I think IRA is a perfectly legitimate definition of anti-Semitism. I certainly resonate to it, um, but I don't think it's an answer. I think it's, yes, it's good to have police forces and state governments and others that have this definition of anti-Semitism that includes you know, extreme Zionist activity. But I don't think it really solved the problem in the end. In the end, we need to live in a society where moderate voices on the left and the right are dominant, where we can talk to each other. That, to me, is the answer. I know I, go- I may sound like a broken record here. Again, is IRA important? Absolutely. Is it a silver bullet for the problems that we're facing in anti-Semitism? I don't think so at all.
1: I don't think there's any silver bullets. It's also hard to get moderates on the same page. It's a funny anecdote, a few years ago, some friends of mine from the Democratic Party tried to start a Facebook group for centrists, right? As everybody was feeling kind of lonely at the time and wanted a place for moderates. And it, it was a terrible failure because no one mm-hmm. could agree on what a moderate was. No one could agree on a centrist. So, you know, it'd be probably 90 Five percent agreed on most things, and there was still acrimony <laughs> over all of that. So, you know, in terms of leadership, is it really as easy as that. Getting the moderates together, I mean, because there's how you define what being a moderate is. Is it temperament? Is it ideology? Like, where on the Goldilocks spectrum are we? And then there's how risk adverse or friendly to standing up and being courageous are people. There's a lot of moving parts. So, well, like. If we're in the courage business and we're trying to find moderates and they don't all define it the same way, how does a leader make sense of that and lead all of these very complex dispersed elements?
0: Yeah, so great question. Um, first of all, you know, one of my favorite phrases is never wrestle with a pig because you'll get dirty and the pig likes it. <laughs> um, you could say that that's <laughs> almost, you know, the modus operandi of the moderate. You know, the moderate doesn't want to get dirty and the current, you know, partisan bickering and um, and so forth, and they don't like they don't like it, so they stay out of the fray, and they think they're being very high-minded by staying out of the fray, and all they're really doing is abandoning the field to these strains. And so I think we've mm-hmm. got to moderates have to get dirty a bit, and that getting dirty doesn't mean being a jerk. It means asserting your thoughtful opinions into the public sphere and not being. Cowed by the more extreme voices on the right and the left, and I think that we have to start conditioning people to think that way, moderates to think that way, to understand that you're not being, you're not doing anybody favors by staying out of it or thinking that you're that you can stand above the fray. You can't, and you're just giving in to extremes. That's number one. Um, you know how you define moderate, and I define moderate. As, is the, the ability of people to talk to each other about issues that they disagree on and not immediately, you know, delegitimize the other. You know, obviously there are things that we should delegitimize. If someone is a true extremist and is a hate monger or wants to kill other people or thinks other people ought to be killed, you know, okay, so they're not part of the conversation. But I would err on the side of including all kinds of voices in that. And I think there are forces on the far right that want to shut that down. And I think there are forces on the far left that want to shut that down, and a moderate is anyone who believes that people should be able to talk to each other about things that they disagree with without being so disagreeable that the conversation breaks down. And um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't define it along like some perspective on what you think about reproductive rights or you know anything. I would make it about do you believe that people uh, about the in the free expression of ideas. Um, you know, there's that there's that this song that is on YouTube that's making you know, that's gone viral. What is it? Uh, Rich Men, North of Richmond. Um, oh, that? yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's a
1: very yeah.
0: intense song. And uh, it was interesting. The guy, I'm just blanking on his name, the singer, um, was interviewed recently. And I think a lot of, like, um, you know, white identitarian types were hoping he would be one of them, like he'd be an extremist. But when he was interviewed, he said, yeah, America's diversity is its strength. He goes, you know, we're a melting pot. And um, and that's our strength. And what he is is a normie, actually. And there's a lot of people like him out there that they're just you know he's not sitting there saying that we're all oppressed, and he's not saying that um, that being white makes you also oppressed. That's kind of silly as well. You know, it's amazing how sort of white identity politics follows the larger identity politics, and and I think we want to break that cycle of of grievances and identity politics and articulate something bigger than ourselves. I like to call it patriotic pluralism. Um, you know, I think the left tends not to be as patriotic and the right tends to not be as pluralistic. And I think it's really in those values, sort of e pluribus unum, you know, for many come one. I think that that's where our strength is in the society. It's in our past. It's in our country's DNA. And I think we should, we have to resurrect some of those key ideas of living in a pluralistic society. To me, that's what it means to be a moderate. And I think there's a lot of people who agree with it. I just don't think that we've organized them. And I know I resonate to what you're saying. You know, I've always found like, I'll call them liberals, but you can call them moderates as well. Is a little bit like herding cats. You know, they can be very individualistic <laughs> in nature, right? And they you know, like they don't want to be part of some political program, even if it benefits them. Because as soon as they do that, that means they're compromising their individuality. So that can be frustrating because my job, is to organize moderates, and moderates sometimes are just being organized.
1: Right, right. No, I, I agree, and I like your your take on patriotic pluralism. Yeah, going back to what you said earlier, that makes me think of Barry Weiss talking about how we all need to spend some social capital, and that ties into your courageous leadership and really having the courage to show up. And, you know, some some of the best activists, I think, are accidental activists, they were thrown into it very organically. Yeah. They kind of were forced to do it. And they're very authentic compared to the activist class, which is almost a totally different type of things. I mean, there are there, let's face it, it's, I, I don't have actual numbers, but, I mean, it's got to be a billion-dollar industry for grievances. And there, there's a lot of people whose careers would go kaput if we solved all these problems. And, you know, if you take a step back, like, I think that's something to really digest. People are getting rich off of these things. This is a problem. They are. Um, they and, are financial you know, interest,
0: and, and, that's an interest in, 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 you know, a culture of grievances without a doubt.
1: Yeah. And, and, I mean, the problem, when you talk about the left and the right extremists coming together, like horseshoe theory, we need another horseshoe of the moderates with what I classify in the psychographic column. And that's where I think Oliver Anthony, he's the singer of that Richmond, North of Richmond song. This is where I think he's a great example of that because, you know, you look at him, everybody assumes, oh, here's a alt-right guy. And nope, he's actually kind of an independent liberal, just he's really an independent guy. But the reason that song has resonated, and I, I've seen some amazing videos of African-American rappers. Yeah, I saw the uh, same one. Really yeah, and they're, like, yeah, they, they really even, resonating. Tearing
0: up to it. Tearing up to that tearing song. Tearing
1: up. Tearing up. And, you know, in, in I used to work in the record business, and so there's nothing more coveted than a crossover artist that can go from, like, Elvis from bluegrass to rock, and that this guy is doing that, you know. The reason they do it is because empathy, they're connecting on those psychographic points. He's talking about the everyday person, marginalized, struggling. I mean, everybody can see something of themselves in that. And so I think that when we are messaging and leading people, I think we need to make it more emotional, make it more relatable. And that's what this guy did. It shows you don't have to have a PhD Do this, you don't have to be a good person. He actually goes out of his way saying, I'm not a good singer, I'm not a good musician, I'm not a good person. That's kind of the way I I have to tell you, I disagree with him on that. I think
0: he's a great singer, but if I could sing like that, maybe I'd be I'd have another tool in my toolbox. But unfortunately, I have it in my family, I just don't have it in me personally. So, um, but I you know, I, I obviously recognize that the intellectual aspect of. This comes easier to me. I like to make arguments. It's sometimes, but I realize we also have to be good storytellers as well to be able to bring people around on this. We, and we, we're trying to do more and more of that, pulling on people's heartstrings so that they can understand what's at stake for them in this polarized discourse. Um, one thing I found, though, is that to sort of reverse this, we have to create critical mass, right? You have to have a critical mass of moderate voices who are together, and you have to find ways of doing it. People have this, th- there's sort of what someone called the crisis of the cultural commons. That's what cancel culture is. When when people have this sort of inflated understanding that that everybody disagrees with them and everybody's going to shut them down if they express their opinion. And the truth is, it's actually a small min- vocal minority that's doing all the canceling, that's doing all the censoring. Right. And so you have when you organize moderates, you can you can get you can start to create an a, a um, an alternative perspective there that gives people permission to speak their minds so for example we have a letter that's circulating right now it's a it's a jewish scholars letter that basically said i think it's you can find it on um jewishscholarsletter.org and um and and it's, so we're asking Jewish academics, scholars to sign this letter that basically says that there's a crisis in the academy where we're no longer hearing alternative perspectives, where they're being silenced, and that that very quality is also fomenting anti-Semitism. Now, how many scholars really understand that? Well, we've already gotten about 370 scholars, Jewish scholars to sign this letter. So if you're a young, aspiring academic who would like to speak their mind and you're worried about everybody shutting you down, maybe this gives you some confidence that you know that there are a lot of other scholars out there who agree with you. And we've got to get people to act in concert together. That's the challenge. It's not easy, as you said before, about, you know, you know hurting the cats of, of moderates who, you know, who don't want to even come to a single definition of what a moderate is. But you got, that's the work that
1: we need to do. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I want to draw attention in in your book, where you talk about restoring Jewish liberalism, you, you had mentioned some ways connecting the dots for others, finding safety in numbers, educating, raising the stakes. Can you talk about some of those, you know, with Uh, some specific examples. Um, This this is really good stuff. What what is the awkward dance?
0: (laughs) Uh, The awkward dance. The awkward dance is one of my favorites. One thing I realized is that, you know, it's hard to go to somebody and say, you know, do you agree with me that we really have a problem with this sort of wokeism stuff? Like you're worried that you're going to be judged. And and, um, and it requires a bit of an awkward dance to get to the point where you find out that the person in front of you, whether they're, you know, sitting next to you in synagogue or you play racquetball with every Tuesday morning or whatever, that that person may actually agree with you about the problem. So you might start by sort of slowly ratcheting it up. I've done that so many times. And when I told people about this concept of the aqua dance, they all immediately said, yes, I've gone through that myself in trying to find like-minded people. So I'm just trying to say to name the concept and have people be more cognizant about of actu- actually doing it. Um, you know, finding safety mm-hmm. in numbers, that's what I just talked about. Like organize people so that they can, they can speak. It, it's a lot harder to, to cancel somebody if when, when there's critical mass of people who are on the same page, you know. Now they're not just facing one wayward person, but they're facing a whole movement. And, and there's a lot of other things that we can do in making people feel like that they're, they have a supportive environment. Um, you know, we've learned along the way, like, one of the things that I've learned is uh, there are people who don't want me to come to their Jewish communities to speak about my book, okay? And I, I I used to think it was a lot of people, but then I realized it was just a few. And those are the people that I call the gatekeepers. So I've named them. They're the gatekeepers, right? They don't want me mm-hmm. to come in because maybe it will cause acrimony on their boards if I talk about the problem with ideology on the left. Or they're worried that it's going to upset their coalition with progressive groups. So they never, they they want to keep me out of their community. So how do I get around that? Well, I get around it by finding sponsors, people who are willing to put their social capital on the line in a community, people who feel strongly about this. And I say, and I try to find a few of them in a community. I say, okay, can you work together and find a way to have me come in so we can have this conversation that your community is avoiding? Again, I think that it doesn't – does it always work? Absolutely not. Nothing always works. Does it work a lot of the time? Yes, it does work a lot of the time.
1: Well, money talks to money, too. So, and it is. It's sad. Um, But, you know, I mean, you always follow the money. I think there really needs to be a lot more donor accountability. There are people – Donating money to universities, thinking it's going for Jewish causes and it's going to fund anti-Zionist curriculum, and and in some cases the heirs have no legal recourse. It's, you know, you really got to look at who who's the gatekeeper, who where where resources are going, and and work with that. But you know, we have to show up too. Um, I have a great audience question for you. Um, sure. I'm just I'm just gonna mostly read it because instead of paraphrasing so this is Eric says how can Jewish leaders fight anti-semitism coming from the left the Islamists and minorities if Jewish leaders are fearful of being called right-wing which will happen inevitably as soon as these sources of anti-semitism are forcefully carried out can anti-semitism from the left Islamist minorities be fought effectively if Jewish leaders are disunited and do not support each other for fear of being called right-wing since you are on the board of CAM, what did you think of the woke anti-Semitism video being removed and two Jewish left-leaning organizations withdrawing? And what did you feel could be done about that? Are you calling that out?
0: Let me address Eric's question here. I think it's critical that Jewish leaders diagnose the situation correctly and act like leaders. And that means acknowledging that some of the people that they'd hoped that they could influence on the left uh, may not be as easy to influence as they thought and that they have to switch gears. You know, their job is to advocate on behalf of the Jewish people and sometimes the strategic environment changes and that means finding sometimes new allies and, and doing things differently than you used to do. I think that's going to be very hard for some Jewish leaders, but I believe that that's what's required now. And some are struggling with it. I know there's many of them are wrestling with this. They don't have easy answers. They're very nervous. You know, the Jewish community has what I like to call incumbent-itis. That is that we've been the incumbents in many institutions for a long time. And there's rewards that come with that, of course. Like, you know, you get invited to the White House Hanukkah party. You influence the administration to adopt an anti-Semitism strategy. You're able to advocate for important things like security funding for the Jewish community because you're well positioned in the halls of power in a lot of ways. And that's been all very valuable. But the flip side is now we're reluctant to alienate those very same people in taking on really radical forces in the left. And I think that's really where we're falling short. You mentioned this combat anti-Semitism movement, woke anti-Semitism video that was put out and the controversy it caused. It was a video that, you know, a few minutes tried to describe the problems that I described in my book. Now, you know, I think that the video um, floundered in a few places, and I think it could have been a a stronger video, but but still, the reaction from the mainstream Jewish organizations, particularly Jewish Federations of North America, was telling. I mean, you know, the idea that you're going to pull out of the combat anti-Semitism movement because of this one video seems extreme and what counts for that? Why, what kind of pressure must they've been receiving um, that they were going to pull out of of it? Because this video named the problem of anti-Semitism coming from progressive ideology. So I think a lot of Jewish leaders, they don't want to alienate their left flank. They don't want to alienate members of Congress. And they're all, They're all sort of addicted to their positioning. And while it's okay for some organizations to be the incumbent because we have a lot to lose, we need some who are willing to break out of that mold. Um, We need some Mm -hmm. who are willing to say, we have a big problem on the left, and we're going to have to use some of our
1: political capital to fight it. And right now, none are. Is it people individually wanting to maintain their personal status and social power, or is it people who do want to do something, but are afraid of upsetting a donor? Like what, what would you say is the breakdown in the resistance we're seeing there?
0: All of the the above. It's not just individuals, it's organizations that don't want to lose their position. It's organizations that want to maintain their positioning within, let's say, Congress or within the administration. It's not just individuals. It's not just if I if I were working if I were heading one of these organizations and I've done that before. To, you know I want to go to the White House Hanukkah party. Not just because I want to have the Hanukkah cookies, but I want to position my organization. I want to I want to be in the good graces of of the powerful, and I want to use that positioning to to benefit the Jewish people. But it's a double edged sword because once you go in that direction, now when they tell you okay we'll help you here, but that means that you have to be quiet about your critique of progressive ideology, or you have to sort of Mm -hmm. lay low on your opposition to ethnic studies coming out of California because, you know, we really need you to play ball there because we don't want to upset other communities that might be supportive of liberated ethnic studies. That's the trade-off that is
1: is making. Do you think this is generational differences, or is it pretty much in every generation we're seeing this in terms of leadership? I don't don't know that
0: it easily breaks down generational lines. I mean, there are differences Mm -hmm. in generations here, but I think, you know, and it may be that an older generation of Jewish leaders would have been less likely to reconcile with these ideological fads on on the left, but I'm not so sure. I mean, the truth is that the boomer generation was quite susceptible to a younger generation's demanding that they comply with this ideology. Um, and so I don't see any reason to believe that, you know, the older generation of mainstream Jewish leaders would have would have fought the good fight on the left. They've, you know, American Jews for decades have really seen themselves as tied at the hip with the American left and with the civil rights movement and the like. That's where we feel most comfortable with psychologically. We, we, you know, we see the Cossacks coming from the, the, the right, not from the left. And we tend to have a blind spot on the left. Um, that's not the experience of other diaspora communities, by the way. That, you, know, you know, even in Canada, the Canadian Jewish community doesn't quite have the same psychological connection to the left in Canada. It's certainly not in the U.K. or Australia or, or what have you. But in the United States, the American Jewish community feels quite psychologically tied to the left and has traditionally felt safer on the left. And I think that mm-hmm. even as the left is less safe, even as the, as the left is becoming more and more like the, the British left, a little bit more like the Corbyn left in America, And I'm not saying that we should go to the right. I'm just saying that we, we have to diagnose the situation properly. That's what leadership has to do. Leadership has to sort of define our reality for us and then help to articulate a response. And I think our, we there's a – honestly, I mean, I know a lot of the people who are leaders of these organizations, and I think there's been – a monumental failure on the part of, of Jewish organizations to diagnose the situation that we're in accurately and to develop strategies that effectively fight it.
1: Well, I know I've I started attending a lot more conventions um, online, especially, and I was surprised. I think it was a few years ago now. I went through an entire several days of the Jewish Federation of North America, and I kept waiting for an anti-Semitism workshop. And they talked about fundraising. They talked about Sunday school, how to adapt to COVID. And I was surprised that it was not really emphasized. You have to be a really diehard nerd activist to really know what's going on. You're not getting it from mainstream news. You're not even getting it from a lot of Jewish news. And so if people are not hearing about this, and they just hear general things that have nice, warm, fuzzy names, they're not going to know that the, the fox is in the hen house. There's a problem where I think getting back to the leadership question and courageous leadership and being in the courage business is how to get other people to, you have to educate them, yes, but you also have to breed courage, but you have to give them some inspiration. There's a mindset that, needs to wake back up. It's still there, that Maccabee mindset, but we've gotten very comfortable. Can you talk a little bit about how you would do that with the mindset? In one of your things, you talked about just talking people through their fears. A lot of people are closer than we think. I think there's a lot of people on the fence that listen to shows like this, that read a lot, they do the action alerts anonymously, but they haven't spent that social capital yet they haven't done more and you know you had a nice anecdote about uh, a woman that you helped uh, several people that you've helped kind of talk through their fears can you share one of those stories
0: yes I met a teacher who had a lot of concerns about the curriculum in Montgomery County Public Schools where my kids go it's a school district uh, a very large school district in an area that's a million population. I think there's like 150,000 kids in the school system. And they're, they've they adopted a very radical diversity curriculum. Um, and, um, and this teacher saw some of the training materials and was really shocked by what they saw. And when I started talking to the person, I realized that she was very scared that a bunch of if she ever went public on any of this, that a bunch of antifa activists or Black Lives Matter activists or whoever else would show up at her door and start protesting. I think her <laughs> uh, her spouse might have been had similar concerns. And I, and one thing that I told her was, you know, I've been doing this for the last two years, and I've been about as public as you can be on these issues, and not once has you know an, an antifa activist from the front lines in Portland or Seattle showing up on my on my front door. And, uh, you know, Montgomery County, Maryland. So, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, I, they really breathe the sigh of relief. You, you've got to start to, like, sort of talk them through. And the other thing I've learned is you have to ask them to take risks. Um, once they do, they tend to break that the psychology of risk aversion. But you have to mm-hmm. – but someone has to sort of call the question to them. You know, and, and that's what we do is, like, we're trying to say, listen, do you want to live in this sort of – in this sort of ideological environment forever? Okay, so what risks are you willing to take? As Natan Sharansky says, no one is gonna disappear you in America. We're not living in Maoist <laughs> China, we're not living in Stalinist Russia. So let's, let's then take some risks. It, yes, it's, it, you might lose a friend, you could. You know, you could lose a job, I guess. It doesn't happen that frequently. So a lot of people have inflated the risks that they would actually experience. Not that there aren't risks. There are, but I want to live in a free democratic society. And I know that other people have taken much, much bigger risks than I'll ever take for the lives of other people, the moral courage that people have shown, um, you know, a small minority for sure. And so I'm really going to get stuck on not taking a risk to preserve our democratic liberal society. And I try to talk them through that as well. Um, I asked them, well, what about doing this? What about doing that? Risk-taking is sort of like a cascading effect, just like silence is. You take one risk, the next one becomes a little easier. You show a little bit more courage, and then you show a little bit more courage. You know, and, yes, of course it can cause you to lose some friends, but I find that, you know, most of my friends are still – friendships are still intact. There were a few people who, you know, distanced themselves from me. It's fine, and I got a lot of new friends. People that I like better because they're the kind of people who are also willing to stand up for their values. So they're better friends.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really personalizing. If you wouldn't take it in your personal relationships, why would you take it in your organizational relationships? Sometimes you need to just speak up for yourself and it's never easy, but you have to do it. And, you know, I always tell my own students, the stage fright is selfish. You know, Moses had a list. He's like, who am I to speak up? You know, who are you not to? So we all can do something, something more. And by the way, we're going to start featuring regular action alerts on the new BIPACT page that I'll be talking about later. But um, in general, you know, there's just so much. I could talk to you forever here. You have so many great things that you're doing. Um, What do you wish everyone in the Jewish and non-Jewish communities would do right now to help? And how can people learn more and support your work? Yeah, well, first of all,
0: I'd love to have many more people involved in things like opposing ethnic studies coming out of California, like many more moderate voices who certainly, you know, want kids to learn about other ethnic communities, but don't want them to be indoctrinated with one perspective with this sort of crazy neo-Marxist perspective that's coming out of california and um, i would like many more people to to ask questions about what's going on in their own school system even if it's not ethnic studies you might find that they've adopted curricula that that really is problematic and people will say well you're opposing diversity you're not opposing diversity you're opposing some ideology that's in the name of diversity and um and you know i don't want my kids to learn what's called white supremacy culture at their schools which is what they're teaching now that you know being on time is a white supremacy value i don't want them to learn that and i'm not going to stand idly by so what i really want is for more jews more non-jews to really do their their due diligence find out what's going on and then to start standing up for their values in a constructive way doesn't mean you have to go and scream and and threaten people as, you know, a few people have done. You do, you know, participate in our democratic process. Do so in a civil voice. Find your friends. Do the awkward dance and find your friends. Form new coalitions. So is that, going to board,
1: is that going to the educational board meetings and writing letters and other things Absolutely. like that? Absolutely.
0: You know, and it's kind of crazy that there are new laws that are they're putting in the fact that we're to bar people from their civic duty of being at the school board meeting. I mean, it's, it's absurd. You know, yes, of course. I mean, our school, we, we own our schools. You know, it doesn't mean um, that we, we have to have veto power over everything that schools want to do. But, you know, if, if schools are indoctrinating kids, we should have a voice in that. Why wouldn't we? You know, we pay property taxes. Does that, that doesn't mean that we hand over our autonomy as parents to a bunch of Uh, uh, teachers' unions or whoever else who want to teach our kids God knows what. I mean, we we should be absolutely able to stand up for our ideas and our values. And, of course, first and foremost are the free expression of ideas and critical thinking for our kids. I pay property taxes so my kids will receive a good education, and if they're being taught that there's only one answer to complex questions, then they're not being taught well, and the schools are failing in their mission. And I'm going to stand up for
1: that. And as you said, there's power in numbers, and that's why we really need to work as a mutually supportive ecosystem and not just be individual silos of Jewish leadership that don't interact, or some people don't even want help, which is sort of surprising to me. You know, we really need to help each other for the power of numbers and also mentoring and building a bench. I see a lot of really well established organizations, including the grassroots, that they may be led by an all do everything person and they're not building a bench and where where is mm-hmm. that gonna be in ten years? So I mean there is so many nuances to leadership I think so. yeah leaders make other leaders. Yeah leaders make other Yeah leaders, and if right? you have talented people, you know, I think everybody in Judaism is a leader. Uh, it's hard. It's very hard leading other leaders sometimes you have to find that right balance of mic- micromanaging and giving people things and empowering I think courageous leadership is not just having chutzpah, but empowering people, making it emotional with storytelling like Oliver Anthony. This. You have to get that connection because that's what they're doing in a meme when they show false propaganda of a picture of something that didn't even happen. They're using the new communication mediums much better than we are. And so I think that there's room for us to grow as well and work better together too. It doesn't that. always have to be shooting other people down. Uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll never agree on, do you just start all over or do you rehabilitate what's broken? I think probably a little bit of each. But this has been great, David. Can you tell us your website and how they can sure. find and specifically support you?
0: Sure. So our website is uh, jilv.org. Um, you can reach me, by the way, at david at org. Um, I'm always uh, up for a conversation, and uh, and yeah, sign up, get on our mailing list. We'd love to be in active communication with you. Um, find out what we're doing. You know, we're building certain constituencies, like like rabbis and Jewish scholars, and there'll be others as well. And you know, maybe you'll find yourself in one of the various groups that we're trying to develop along the way. We're building constituencies of people who can work together and create that strength in numbers. So and the way you can find out is by reaching out to us and going on our website and then reaching out to me or one of my colleagues in person
1: as well. Wonderful. Yeah. I just, just talking to Mercy, um, one of your new people that's going to be focusing on academia and that's so greatly yeah. needed. So, um, so do you have there. time she's for doing great work? Yeah. Yeah. So she's wonderful. Um, do you have time for our quick lightning round? I do. Okay. So it's just six short questions, but they're fun. So why are you proud to be a Jew? I'm proud to be
0: a Jew because we have an incredible history of overcoming adversity, of bringing moral and intellectual ideas to the world. I'm proud to be a Jew because Judaism has become, by and large, not always, but one of the great forces for good in humanity.
1: Who are your Jewish role models?
0: Um, I'll go with Natan Sharansky, who is a great Soviet Jewish refusenik. I think he's one of the most courageous people I've ever known, and, and he has incredible intellectual integrity.
1: Well, maybe one is enough right now. Yeah, yeah. What concerns you most about the present moment in relation to the Jewish people?
0: I think we're living in a very polarized time, not just in America, but worldwide. Obviously, we're seeing it in Israel as well, and I'm worried that Jews are the canary in the coal mine, and we're going to really experience some severe problems um, in this very unstable world we're in right now.
1: What makes you mad?
0: What makes me mad? Well, a lot of things make me mad. One thing that makes me mad is that too many Jews don't understand what it means to be Jewish and how to stand up for our values And uh, even though Israel is imperfect, how to stand up for an imperfect Jewish state that has done incredible things in its 75 years. So I think too many Jews are not fully appreciating Israel today.
1: For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember? I want them to
0: remember that I'm someone who stood up for my own values, who was willing to take risks, who was willing to act with intellectual integrity, who was uh, willing to
1: say the hard things when others sometimes weren't. And finally, what's your outlook on the future? Are you hopeful?
0: I think I'm by nature a hopeful person. I'm an optimist, but I will say it's becoming harder and harder. I do think that in general, forces for good tend to find their voice over time and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do that. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of hard work. It's not just going to happen by itself. I think it's going to take the work of really thoughtful, smart, caring people who are willing to take risks to create that reality. So I'm an optimist partly because I'm, I want to be part of the solution, and I'm looking for others who will help create the reality that I think can,
1: can come our way. Well, David Bernstein, I want to thank you for being with us today and for all of your tireless work fighting for traditional Jewish liberal values. I think you're a true role model for what courageous leadership looks like, and I hope you come back again soon.
0: I'd love to. It's been great
1: talking to you. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Check out our new BIPAC channel for bipartisan action against anti-Semitism and see how everyday audience members can make a difference with our action alerts contributed by grassroots activists. Also, don't miss Andrew Pesson's interview with Jeff Wax as we spotlight anti-Semitism at CUNY this month. For Jewish TV Channel, I'm Laura Kepler. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV Channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.